It's all about Jesus, is it not? Yes. It's all about Jesus, not about us, is it? It's about him. He's the centerpiece of our life. Clearly the centerpiece of our faith. He's the centerpiece of the church. He is our everything. Now with that in mind, I want to take you back to the first century and the appearance of John the Baptist and talk to you once again out of the third chapter of Luke's gospel. And we're going to talk this morning about Jesus in his baptism, his baptism with the Holy Spirit and his baptism with fire, what that means. Read with me. I want to just read the chapter again, rehearse it. We've been studying through this chapter for several weeks now. And just start at verse 1 again. Let's just read down together through verse 18. Luke writes this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So that's the, that's the setting. All those people are in positions of power and authority. He says that in that setting, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So John was a prophet in the mode of Elijah from the Old Testament. And this prophecy from Isaiah speaks of the one who would come and prepare the way for the coming one from the Messiah. So all Israel would know these prophecies and all Israel would be living with a certain expectation. John is the one who fulfills this quote from the prophet Isaiah. Luke goes on, he says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I thought about that. You know, what a, what a thing to say to people. They're coming to hear you. And you greet them with, you brood of vipers. Wow. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. I'm just moved right now to suggest to you, there are people sitting in this room right now who are facing impossible circumstances. I want you to take that verse to heart. God can raise up from stones children of Abraham. He can do the impossible. You just take that to heart. Just simply believe that this morning, okay? Regardless of your circumstances, looks impossible. You take it to heart this morning. I just believe the Holy Spirit put that on my heart to say to somebody today. He goes on, he says, verse 9, The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, 
And what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly. And they were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I love, I love verse 18. This is probably my favorite verse in the whole text. And those of you who will, you'll understand this, who know me. And with many other words, he exhorted them. <laughs> he exhorted them and preached good news to them. Have you ever, um, ever heard someone describe another person's spiritual life or religious life in these terms or, or just question their commitment by saying something like this, well, he or she sure talks a good game. You ever heard that? You know what I'm talking about? There's an apparent contradiction between what someone says and how they live. They talk a good game. If we're, if we're talking a good game, we should be walking a good game. Would you agree with me? Of course. So there's a difference in talking about faith. There's a difference in talking about spirituality. There's a difference in talking about belief and actually living it. A marked difference. And John, John is addressing that very idea, that very concept when he, when he addresses these people who are, they are the religionists of the day. In fact, if you go back to Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul castigates the Jews for they've been given all these privileges, they've been given God's law, but they're not producing fruit. And so John addresses this issue. And he has a fourfold message for those hearers of his. And that fourfold message addresses us uh, just the same way. Let me just walk you through these four aspects of John's message quickly. First, he says, flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. There is a coming wrath. The wrath of God was coming upon all those who were, in effect, spectators. All these Jews were spectators, observers. They were not really participants. Hence, John's call to them to flee the wrath to come. There are, there are literally thousands upon thousands of people in Christian churches this morning who are spectators. They're not participants. They're not participating in the work of the kingdom. The extent of their religious and spiritual ex experience and exercise is simply coming and sitting and hearing someone yell at them. Oh, encourage them, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, baptism is not enough. You can go through the ritual baptism, can't you? Just, seem, just, just doing that is, is, is quite simply not enough. No matter how many baptisms a person goes through, 
It's not enough. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Implicit in believing, it's an active dynamic. It's not just a passive acknowledgement. It's an active event. It's you're believing. When you believe in somebody, you're invested with them. Is that true? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. God is not sending people to hell. God is trying to rescue them from hell. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature objects of wrath. We are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. That is our natural condition. Now, people don't want to hear that today. Uh, Our whole social support system believes fundamentally not that people are wicked from the core, not that their hearts are deceitfully sick. No, no, no. People are basically good. That's the position where where all of our, our help systems work from. People are basically good. No, no, no. We need to what? We need to flee the wrath to come. We need to acknowledge that we are sinners from the get-go. Again, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says this. He says, for of this you can be sure. Now he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to people who purport to be believers. And amongst those people are probably some who are not really committed. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. Now, immorality, impurity, and greedy covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? Such a man is an idolater and has, has, uh, has any inheritance, he doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. All of that stuff is, is basically idolatry because it all comes before Christ. God said what? You shall have no other, what? Gods before me. And so if there is something in your life that's gripped your heart, gripped your attention, gripped your life that ought not to, that's idolatry. I was, I was talking with a man this past week who's, who's uh, gripped by pornography. And he can't shake it. I said, no, 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 don't tell me you can't shake it. You don't want to shake it. You don't want to shake it. You love it. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't, I hate it. No, you don't. You don't hate it enough. And we can address various aspects of our lives that way, can't we? You have trouble with drugs, immorality, alcohol. Oh, I just, I want to, Pastor, I want to, I want to quit. I want to, no, you don't want to quit. If you wanted to quit, you'd quit. If, in fact, you're a Christian. You have all the resources available to you in your life already. You've got the power of God in your life. You simply don't want to. Flee the wrath to come. 
He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And people are going to say, well, you know, I understand. No, we need, we need to say, no, I don't understand. You have no excuse. There's no reason. You need to flee the wrath to come. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. You cannot live your life with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. You are either in the kingdom or you are in the world, one or the other. There's no equivocation. I love this, Psalm 2. This is one of the most beautiful psalms. I love the, the last verse, verse 12, and the first three words. What are the first three words of this verse? Psalm 2, what are they? Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Now that's a, that's a very loose translation from the Hebrew. The Hebrew is a little bit more complicated. But that works. Kiss the sun. What does a kiss represent? <laughs> Affection, love, commitment. When I kiss my wife, ought that to mean something? Certainly. We attach a certain connotation to a kiss. This is what made Judas's betrayal of Jesus that much more egregious. How did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. You think, how could he ever do that with a kiss? We're to kiss the son. We're to embrace him. We're to love him because he first loved us. We're to express that with some physical, tangible expression. The psalmist says, kiss the sun. A metaphor for, for showing and demonstrating that he is number one. Notice this, kiss the sun. Lest what? Lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. In other words, don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. He'll mess with you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How many know the truth of those words? Man, you can exhale. And go, oh, thank you, Lord. When you know, you know his grace, you know this salvation, and you know that he is your refuge. And all fear and anxiety dissipates. So John says, flee the wrath to come. How does one flee the wrath to come? How do you actually do that? This is his next facet. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. So then, if you're to flee the wrath to come, how do you do it? By what? Repenting. Very good. Repent. He's calling people to repent. True repentance. True repentance. True spirituality does not consist simply of changing our vocabulary. It really consists of changing our behavior, our lifestyle, our conduct. Repentance requires a change in attitude and a concurrent change in behavior. Repentance. Very simply, 
I'm walking this way. I got it all figured out. I know how it should go. I'm leaning on my own understanding. How many, how many know what I'm talking about? I think I'm so smart. I got it all figured out. I'm walking this way. I'm doing my thing. And then boom, I realize messed up, messed up. When I became a Christian, I was one of those people. I had it all figured out. I was doing my thing. I had it together. I had a vision. I had a plan for my life. And then boom, it all evaporated. And I figured, wait a minute. If living my life this way has got me to this place, I need to make a change. And I didn't know what repentance was, but I knew I needed to make a change. And God tapped me on the shoulder and said, do I have your attention now? And I did. I did a 180, a complete 180. And I just left everything off and started walking towards him. I had no idea of what he wanted. I had no idea of what he wanted of me. I said, you know what? I'm going to get to know you. And I'm going to find out what you want. And I'm going to do it. That was how I received the Lord. It was a personal, personal commitment. Repentance. Verbal repentance is not enough. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. True spirituality is not cheap. And the way you know that is you count the cost. The way you know that is you have to ask yourself, what has my repentance cost me? It has cost me everything but as I give up everything, I turn to him and I gain even more. But I don't realize that until I'm further down the road. I mean, understand what I'm talking about. Not everybody yet. Okay, hang with me. <laughs> repentance. There's two types of people who will not repent. Two types of people who will shut themselves off from God. The Bible talks about these two kinds of people. The first, the first group are, Jesus says, it's harder for a, what kind of man to go through, to get into heaven than a what? Camel go through a needle. Did I get that right? Was that close? I got the idea, right? Okay. Or is it easier? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. That's what it is. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And he's talking about a sewing needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. <laughs> Whoa. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches. The Bible says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Now, it's not a bad thing. If God chooses to bless you financially, you've got lots of money, great, that's wonderful. But he gives it to you as a what? as a trust to be stewarded. That's a challenge. Better that I not be rich because <laughs> I may just lavish it on myself and not share it. Rich people, it's hard. <coughs> Bless you. They shut themselves off from God, really. 
You just watch their life. You just observe their life. And, and, and all the stuff that they accumulate is just for them. And there's no sharing. There's no ministry. There's no giving away of what God has entrusted to them. And there, there's the, uh, then there's the people who are the good people. Paul talks to them in Romans chapter 2. And he says, these people are justifying themselves because in, the, in, in chapter 1, Paul is saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness and against those who suppress the truth. So he's talking about all these godless people and God's pouring out his wrath. And, and then you got, in, beginning in chapter 2, you got the, the, the self-righteous good person say, yeah, Paul, tell him, give it to him. And he turns to them and he says, you do the same thing. You're no different than they are. A lot of us this morning, at some point in our experience on this road to coming to know the Lord, all of us have, have taken at some point this opportunity to say, but I'm a good person. You don't understand. I'm a good person. Justifying ourselves. You have no leg to stand on. But I don't rape, pillage, and plunder like these other people. I'm a good person. You've effectively cut yourself off from God by justifying yourself. And worse yet, religious people. And these are the groups of people that, that John is talking to. Religious people. Are there lots of religious people around this globe? <laughs> Billions of them. And they are sincerely religious, are they not? But guess what? Their religion their belief system has cut themselves off from the one true God. Religious people. So you've got these groups of people who deliberately, deliberately cut themselves off from God. They are unwilling to repent. They see no need of repenting. Repenting from their false religious beliefs. Repenting from their self-righteousness. Repenting of their indulgence in their own wealth. He says, repent. You're going this way. The only way to flee the wrath to come is repent. The third facet of John's message to, the, to his hearers in that day and to us today, he reminds us that heritage is of no value. In other words, the righteousness of other people cannot make me a person acceptable to God. Each person has to stand before God as an individual. Now, John says this, he, he makes this point to the Jews he's addressing. And he's challenging them to flee the wrath to come, to repent, and so forth. And he knows what they're thinking. They're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. we're Abraham's descendants. We're, we have, by our birthright, a ticket to heaven, just because we're Jews. That was the mentality. That's what the rabbis taught. And John anticipates that. And he says, and don't you begin to think that you have a birthright. You have a natural access to God and to heaven just because you're, Abraham says, you are not. And by, by the same measure, being born in a Christian country, by the way, America is not a Christian country. We have a Judeo-Christian ethic upon which we were founded, but we have never been, nor will we ever be a Christian country. 
We have a value system, or at least we used to have a value system, that was based on the Bible. But being born in a Christian country or growing up in a Christian home even, going to a Christian church or living a moral, quote-unquote, Christian lifestyle means absolutely nothing if we have not personally responded to the offer of forgiveness found only by coming to Jesus. It's only in Jesus Christ. No other, no other person. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. What's that name? Jesus. No baptism. No amount of church attendance. No history of Christ in the family can substitute for a personal turning to Jesus with an awareness that he and he alone provides forgiveness for our sin. Repent. Flee the wrath to come. Turn to Jesus. Why? Here's his fourth facet. Because judgment is at hand. Judgment is at hand. Again, I I call your attention to Romans chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed. Present tense, continuous. God's warning, he's saying, judgment is at hand. Every tree that does not produce fruit shall be chopped down and shall be thrown into the fire. We must never forget that judgment is inclusive. It includes all. That's what he says. That's what John says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. It does not matter how high the tree is. The tree can grow really high. He says, wow, look at how big that tree is. Wow, the tree can be really leafy and green. Wow, it doesn't matter how high it is. It doesn't matter how green it is. What matters is that it produces what? Good fruit. Not that it just looks good. It's not just ornamental. (laughs) We're not just ornaments on God's Christmas tree. We are meant to produce fruit. Otherwise, we are no good except to be what? Chopped down, thrown away, and burned in fire. Mark chapter 8, listen to Jesus. Sometimes I think we, we think that bearing fruit means I have to do great things for God. No, no, no. Listen to this. If anyone is ashamed of me, Ashamed of me, ashamed of my word. In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. It's simply being ashamed. There are lots and lots of closet Christians who are ashamed to use the name of Jesus publicly, ashamed to tell people. I was in the gym the other morning, Friday morning, and, you know, these guys... They all know me. I've witnessed to him. And it's this one guy that I've been witnessing to for 30 plus years. He says, you know him, Mike Tomajan. He says, what's new? I said, okay. I'm going to do it again. There's all these guys, you know, in all various stages of dress or undress, the locker room. 
men's locker room. What's new, Pastor Zach? And I said, Mike, Jesus. And I heard him go, oh. I said, Jesus, Mike, his mercies are new every morning. He says, I should have known better. <laughs> Although he has confessed to me, he says, you know, he says, I, I just want to make sure that you're close by when my time comes. <laughs> I said, you better start praying, buddy. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, Paul's talking to believers. We're all going to stand before God and give an account. Now, with this message of judgment that John preaches, he also gives a measure of hope and comfort. And here we get to the heart of John's ministry. Because it's here now he points. He points ahead and beyond, beyond himself to another person. Who's the other person? Yeah, he's the forerunner. It's his whole purpose to point to Jesus, the Messiah. Now John, John has a powerful place in God's salvation history. But he knows it is only a place of preparation to the main event. Calling people to repentance, as important and vital as repentance is, as essential as it is, calling people to repentance is not the main event. The main event is the appearance of the one who has come. And he has come in order that no one need face God's judgment. So John is saying, there is bad news, flee the wrath to come, but there's good news because you won't have to undergo that judgment if you turn to the one who I'm pointing you towards. That's simply all of our message, right? We talk to people, we point them towards Jesus. Now for centuries... As we've talked about over the past several weeks, for centuries, the Jewish people had longed for and they eagerly awaited, anticipated their coming Messiah. They, they expected a political, military Messiah, someone in the vein of, of David, uh, king and ruler who established Israel's boundaries and brought peace to the nation. And this is what they longed for. But now the people were in a heightened sense of expectation, largely because of John's ministry. John's out there preaching. He's talking about the Messiah. People are hearing this and they're thinking, wow. So their sense of expectation is being heightened more and more and more. You, they're, just, they're just on the edge of their seat. They can taste it. And Luke says that they were wondering in their hearts if John might in fact be the Christ. They were so eager. Maybe John is the one. Now John, though he was a true prophet of God, and Jesus describes him really marvelously in, in Matthew eleven eleven. You know that passage? 
Matthew describes John the Baptist as being the greatest man who ever lived up to that time. So though he, he was a true prophet and though he was the greatest man to ever live up to that time, he was not the Messiah. Nor did he ever claim to be. In fact, in John the Evangelist's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 20, John confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Because people wanted to know. So John turns the attention to the one more powerful. More powerful. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, we have a new introduction here. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, we all realize that John's baptism did not grant salvation, right? John's baptism was simply signatory of an apparently uh, repentant heart. It only prepared a person to welcome Jesus and to receive his message of salvation and his baptism. John had his baptism, but now there's a new baptism. Paul would explain this, by the way. It's in uh, the, the book of Acts in chapter 19. Paul was on one of his missionary journeys and he was happening through the city of Ephesus. And he was interacting with some, some disciples. They're, they're indiscriminate. We don't have any much detail about them. But the, the text gives us the context. So he's interacting with some disciples. And, and you, have you ever done this? You're talking with people who purport to be Christians, but you're talking and you're, something's not jibing. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever done that? If you, you know, if you're a faithful person out there sharing the gospel, witnessing, you're running into people who are what I term cultural Christians. They've never really read the Bible. They have a clue. They're just good people. And so you talk with them and you go, something's not connecting here. I believe that's what Paul was experiencing in Ephesus as he met these disciples. So he asked them this question. He says, well, what, what baptism did you receive? And their response was what? John's baptism. Paul goes, duh, I get it now. And he corrects them and further instructs them. He says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He, meaning John, taught people, he said to people, he says, not, don't trust in his baptism. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And then he instructed them in the way, and they got baptized, and baptized in the Holy Spirit. You read the text yourself. Now, there is a continuity, I submit to you, there is a continuity between John's message in ministry and Jesus' message in ministry. They dovetail. There's a continuity there. But John himself draws a sharp distinction between the two. And this distinction is seen in the coming one's identity and the coming one's baptism. John has a certain identity. The coming one has a certain identity. John has a baptism. This coming one has a baptism. But there's a distinction between the two. There's a continuity and yet a distinction. Are you with me? John himself. Now would you think, here's a guy that presumably, his parents died probably when he was young. 
He, he chooses to go live in the desert. He grows up, in effect, in the desert. He's a desert guy. Do you think somebody who grows up in the desert wearing camel hair clothes and eating locusts would have to be a fairly rugged individual? You're not going to be some wussy guy, right? I mean, you're going to be a pretty tough guy. So here's John. John is not some little pussycat. He is, he's a pretty rugged guy. On top of that, he's, he's called as a prophet. Nobody, I don't care who they are, nobody wanted to be called as a prophet. Why? Because people hate you. People say to me, Pastor, I think I, I, think I want to be a pastor. I said, why in the world would you want to be a pastor? you got to be nuts. Well, I, I watch you. I, I think I could do that. <laughs> Let me tell you, son. You want to be a pastor? You better love people. Oh, pastor, I do love people. Do you love people who hate you? Nobody wanted to be a prophet. Man, oh man, I submit to you that it takes personal strength of body and soul to live and grow up in the desert and to be a prophet of God. John was a sturdy fellow, rugged, strong. But John points to one who is more powerful. Do you see the contrast? He points to one who is more powerful, who will arrive with the power of God to inaugurate a kingdom of God in a messianic role. And how does John view himself in, in reference to Jesus? Look what he says of himself. He views himself as a servant, as a slave to the king. And in true humility, John realizes that he is not worthy even to untie the thongs of Jesus' sandals. One of the lowliest tasks in that day was the task of a slave, a doulos, a servant was removing the sandals of his master and any guests and then washing their feet. Do you recall Jesus picked up on that very theme? And uh, here, here's his last meal with his disciples. The night before he's going to be, or the night he's going to be betrayed. And they're going to have their last meal together. So they all come in the room has been prepared. Remember Jesus told uh, his disciples to go prepare the place and, and we'll have dinner together. The place has been prepared. They're all there. The meal's ready. They all recline at the table. Now you know what it means to recline at the table. You know how they ate in those days? That's right, on their elbow. Table's low. My head's here. Your feet are right there. Do you understand the essential need to wash these feet? Now, in preparing the room, should there have been preparation for somebody to wash their feet? 
There wasn't. So they're all reclined at the table, ready to have the meal, and Jesus goes, all right, I guess I'm going to do it. He gets up, ties a towel around his waist, and goes around and washes all of his disciples' feet. Who do you think he started with? Judas. Wow, what a statement. Would you, just think about this. You know that this person is going to betray you with a kiss in just a couple of hours. In your heart of hearts, would you wash their feet first? Or would you start on the other end and work your way around and hope you ran out of water by the time you got to him? <laughs> Boy, is the heart deceitful and desperately sick. Jesus himself taught his disciples that night. He gave them an example, an illustration of what they were to be like. They were to be servants. Servants. Yeah, but don't I have rights? Yes, you have rights, but you don't claim your rights. We follow in Jesus' footsteps. That's our challenge. We have to remind each other of that every day. My wife reminds me every day, your job is to serve me. <laughs> I said, oh, that's right, dear, I forgot, excuse me. Thank you. John saw himself as even lower than a slave in comparison to this coming one, to Jesus. John saw himself as not even worthy of doing the most menial service for Jesus, untying the thongs of his sandals. True humility, I, I submit to you, that is, that I, I am not worthy, I am not worthy to even untie, I know my wretchedness. Humility. Humility marked his life. I submit to you, humility was the mark of John's spiritual stature. If you want, to, if you want spiritual stature, what should mark your life? Humility. Get to, get to the lowest place. Get to the lowest place. That's the mark of spiritual stature. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the... And what was John's, John's expression? Again, I, I, turn, I, I point you to the apostle, apostle John's gospel. He says, he puts these words in John's mouth, and he says, John the Baptist says, I, he must become greater, I must become less. Can hardly wait to get to that passage. That'll preach, won't it? He must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must be. Is that your mantra? If I could even use that word. Lord, you must become greater in my life, I must become less. You must become greater, I must become less. Now, among the ways in which the Messiah would be more powerful than John would be in his baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now this, is, this gets exciting. The coming of the Holy Spirit had been prophesied through the prophets with the coming of the Messiah. So the Jews, who were astute to the Scriptures, they knew that when the Messiah was coming, that God would pour out his Spirit 
In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, we read this. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Famous passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Is that a promise? A new heart and a new spirit. God's going to put it in you. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Who would not want that? God, I can't stand the heart I have. It's desperately sick. Give me a new heart. You promised. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Joel, the prophet Joel. And afterward, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. John's word about the Holy Spirit must have been comforting, encouraging, thrilling to these people who are hearing him preach about flee the wrath to come, pointing him to the Messiah. That God will, with the coming of the Messiah, pour out his spirit. And they hoped for that day. They hoped for that day when God's spirit would be poured out. In that day, they would at last be baptized in the very power and the very person of God. Think about that. The very person of God, the very power of God would take up residence in your life. You would have the power in you that was responsible for creating the universe. The very person of God, the Holy Spirit, would be living in you. Who would not long for that? Wow, what a promise. Well, yeah, I know. I don't feel that power. <laughs> well, maybe you don't feel that power because you don't have it. Maybe you don't have it. Maybe you're still trying to do this on your own. Maybe you have not really taken to heart his words, flee the wrath to come, repent. Find refuge in Jesus, really. Throw it all away. You want to know the power of God in your life. You want to have a brand new heart. <laughs> you want to live a brand new life. You want to be able to obey God and keep his decrees and keep his commands and it not be an egregious, hard, drag thing. No, oh, I have to obey God. I know I shouldn't say it that way, but that's how I feel. Man. Maybe you don't have God in your life. You've been hanging out in church for a long time. You know all the lingo. You know exactly what to say. You memorize the verses too. But you have not God. He's come to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not a stripped down version. <laughs> you get him with all of his accessories. It's not bait and switch, like we do. Jesus, 
Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples, didn't he? In John chapter 14, listen to his very words. This is the night he's going to be betrayed. He's going to die the next day. They're having their last meal. John says this. Jesus knows he's going away. Jesus knows he's going to die, be buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you orphans. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsel, another like me, to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be, what? In you. You can't get any clearer. He'll be in you. Yes. And then did Jesus fulfill that promise? Absolutely. Day of Pentecost. 50 days later, he told the disciples to go to the upper room. Wait. Wait. You're going to be baptized with power. Man, can you imagine what was going on in that upper room, what the chatter was all about, the prayer? Ooh, oh. Is it today? And the Holy Spirit came, didn't he? Powerful. Powerful. And then the Holy Spirit came upon what? The Samaritans, Acts chapter 8. Again, unifying the Samaritans now with the Jews. Then he fell on, in chapter 10 of Acts on the, on the Gentiles through Cornelius. Then as we referenced earlier in, in Acts chapter 19, those Ephesian believers... The church was complete in that sense. The initial day, the initial start. All these different people included. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And the evidence that coming upon them, making them part of the total body of Christ with dramatic attending signs. Many of you know, uh, they were speaking in tongues. They were prophesying. They were exhibiting just this overflow of the Spirit in their life. And though... Without these kind of attending dramatic signs today, every believer now is baptized into the church by Christ with God's Spirit. You may or may not speak in tongues. You may or may not prophesy. Those things were clearly intended to identify those initial believers and to unify all of those separate people groups into one body. Peter says, the same thing happened to them, happened to us. Who are we to exclude them? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. But the, fruit, the, the bottom line is, okay, am I producing fruit? Do I know the presence and the power of God in my life? Or is my life just the same as it was before? except that I'm just religious. Am I making sense here? Now there's a third baptism that John alludes to, John identifies. What's the first baptism? John's baptism, which is baptism of? Second baptism, he points us to, is the baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. He says there's a third baptism. What's the third baptism? With fire. Now, there's some debate about what that means. 
But I want to suggest to you, if, if you read the context again, in which he says these words, if you go back up to verse 9, he says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire is implicit of what? Judgment. If you follow his argument in verse 17, he talks about the farmer who is going to winnow his, the wheat and the chaff will be blown away and it will be gathered up and it will be burned where? In the fire. Sandwiched right between those two references is a baptism of fire. So I submit to you that this baptism of fire is a reference to judgment and punishment. Jesus will inaugurate a baptism, John says, that brings both blessing and judgment simultaneously. The coming one will baptize the truly repentant. Those who are prepared to receive him, and he'll baptize them with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But the unrepentant, those who are not receptive to Jesus, he will baptize with the judgment of eternal fire. Now Jesus has come. He says it. He has come to bring healing and good news to the poor and the oppressed. He's come to bring rest for the weary. And yet those who reject his ministry, those who reject his message, face certain judgment. And this is where John uses this next metaphor. He declares that the time of this baptism is near, just like he did back up in verse 9, when he said the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Judgment is at hand. He says the same thing here. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. It's imminent judgment. Or the pronouncement of it. And the, the picture, very simply, is a farmer. A farmer has a wheat harvest. He harvests the wheat. He brings the harvested wheat into the threshing floor. And then they thresh the wheat. And they would have different ways of doing it. But typically, they would use an ox or, or a team of oxen. And the oxen would drag a heavy stone or heavy big pieces of wood over the, the wheat stalks. And it would rough it up and, and break it down and just separate the, 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 the bad part from the, good, the chaff from, the, from the, the heads of wheat. Then the farmer, after he'd done that, they would take their, what's called a winnowing fork. It was just a big, huge, like a pitchfork. And he would take all that, all that matter, all that stuff on the, on, the, on the threshing floor, and he would throw it up in the air. And the wind, presumably, at the time of harvest, would, would carry the chaff away and the heavier heads of grain would fall to the floor of the, of the threshing floor. And then the farmer would gather up. He would gather up all of the, the grains of wheat and, and store them in his barn and keep them so that they could be ground into flour for making bread. But he would also gather up the chaff, rake up all the chaff, and he would burn it. So John uses that metaphor. He uses that picture. He says, in a similar way, the Messiah will separate out everyone who belongs to him and like the farmer will gather his wheat into the barn where it will be forever safe and protected. And also, similar to the farmer, Jesus will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The long-awaited Messiah would himself perform both functions, 
though not necessarily in the time and sequence John and probably the other prophets before him may have thought. Judgment is imminent. This is what they would preach. I suggest to you, and I believe, that the final separation and the ultimate judgment will be only at Christ's second coming. In Matthew chapter 25, we read this. The unsaved will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The point is this. All of us, all of us will be tossed in the air and assessed for how we have responded to him, just like the wheat. None of us can sit smugly, comfortably, and say, not me. No, no, no. Everyone is going, every life is going to be assessed. You cannot afford to fool yourself. That doesn't mean that you can't live in a sense of eternal insecurity. You can have confidence. Jesus says what? How do I have confidence? He who perseveres with me to the end. Am I persevering? Am I bearing fruit? Am I serious? Do I believe this? Am I living it out? Or is it just talk? Am I walking the walk? Am I just talking the talk? And I submit to you that John's powerful call for repentance is just as relevant and needed today as it was when he first gave it. It is our responsibility as Christians, our responsibility as truth carriers. It's our responsibility to warn people that we talk to about the danger of false, shallow, non-saving repentance. Repentance is simply is grounded in selfish regret over sin's consequences. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I'm going to get punished. No, no, no. I'm sorry because I was wrong and so convicted that I, I come seeking his forgiveness. It must be a repentance that delivers from sin. False repentance doesn't deliver from sin. A false repentance doesn't initiate a passion for holiness. Only a genuine repentance initiates a passion for holiness. I want to be holy. Where'd you get that idea? God. Nothing else matters. I want to be holy. A false repentance leads to further sin. Why? Because you never repented in the first place. If you keep doing the same thing and you get frustrated over it, it just says you never really repented in the first place. It was a false, shallow repentance. It's not rocket science. Not only does it lead to further sin, leads to a hypocritical attempt to maintain a facade of self-righteousness. I gotta look good. Inside, I'm full of dead men's bones. I'm like a whitened sepulcher. I'm just a mess inside, but I've got to look good on the outside. It's a facade. You've got to be sick and tired of walking around with a facade. It only produces more self-deception. 
And that leads to a deadly false security. You've got to talk yourself into it. And with that, your heart gets harder and harder and harder. And finally, your conscience is seared. You see how critical and important genuine repentance is? When John says, flee, repent, don't take refuge in, your, in your, any kind of religious history and background. Are you producing fruit? Are you living a different life? Warnings are important, aren't they? A warning, but a warning without a gospel is as imbalanced as a gospel without a warning. Got to have them both. You got to present the bad news and the good news. <laughs> I got bad news for you, but I got good news for you. You can never really appreciate the good news unless you see it set up against the background of bad news, and I'm talking about really bad news. Think with me right now, just for a moment. This is our third time we're addressing this. Turn the lights down. Ask yourself right now, what is it I need really to repent of? What is it I need to repent of right now? You want to ensure that you are fleeing the wrath to come. These are probably the most important words you'll ever hear in your life. What is it I need to repent of now? What is the most important thing to me? that crowds Jesus out of my life? What are my greatest personal concerns and loves and desires and appetites? What is going on in my heart? It shouldn't take very long because the Holy Spirit, if you're really open to him, he will reveal it to you just like that. Then the issue is, will you repent? We turn from it. You have to turn from it in order to lay hold of God's forgiving mercy and grace. And his cleansing you from all unrighteousness. What's your God? Money? Power? Prestige? Your job? Immorality? Jealousy? You're selfish? What's God calling you to share? Where is he asking you to humble yourself? Humble yourself. Die to yourself. Confess those things. Just confess those things. God, I confess freely. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer in my heart. I'm a sinner. Receive his forgiveness by faith and be cleansed.
and receive his Holy Spirit. God, put your spirit in me. I want to know you, and I want to know your power. Amen. Turn to one another. Pronounce a blessing on your neighbor, would you, in the name of Jesus? I've used up Alan's time. We need your parking place. You can linger for a little while. Father, bless your church. Bless your church as we go from this place. Keep us mindful of our ongoing need to repent. That one time is not enough. Our repentance is daily, even hourly. Lord, that we be close to you reaffirming our commitment to you to walk with you, humbling ourselves, denying ourselves, thanking you. Let those things mark our life, Lord, for your glory, that we not be ashamed of you, but be full of your spirit and full of your power. Bless you, church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great week. Please tell somebody about Jesus. Jesus.